Uh, well, good morning, everyone. For most of recorded history, humans have believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Uh, this was based on common observation, right? Doesn't the sun and the moon and the stars move across our sky? It was based on the best science and technology that people had available. It was also based on what the Bible told us. Doesn't the Bible say in the Psalms and in other texts that the sun rises and sets every day? Doesn't Genesis say that God created the earth first and then later he created the sun? So everyone just believed that the earth was the center of the universe. But in the 1600s, a scientist and a Christian named Galileo came along. Galileo has been called the father of modern astronomy. We have telescopes named after him now. And with the new telescopes that he built, he was able to see the Milky Way, the phases of Venus, the moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn in ways that no one had ever been able to see before. And it was based on his observations and his calculations that he asserted, along with a guy named Copernicus, that it was actually the Earth that rotated every single day, and it revolved around the sun, and that we've actually gotten it all wrong. The earth is not the center of our universe. It's not even the center of our own solar system. Now, that presented a dilemma, because suddenly the best science contradicted the Bible. Or more accurately, the best science contradicted how people have always interpreted the Bible. And you probably know the story. Galileo was condemned by church leaders. He was branded a heretic, and he was placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. Now, we know at this point that Galileo was right, that the science was right. And in that specific circumstance, when the new science conflicted with an interpretation of Scripture, the church should have asked, is it possible that we've been reading those passages all along in the wrong way. And what they later realized was that the language used in the Bible of the sun rising and setting, it was, it was all from the standpoint of a human, an ancient human's observation or perspective. It was the best way that ancient people could describe what was happening up in the sky, but it was not scientifically accurate. How could it be? They didn't have the telescopes or the knowledge that Galileo had. See, the Bible was not written to teach us astronomy or geology or anthropology or any of those. It wasn't written to be a modern scientific textbook. And when we turn it into one, we're making a huge mistake. Now, I share all this because if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series talking about science and faith, how they're not really at odds with one another. They're actually complement one another. And last week specifically, uh, we said that there is one issue where people in church or Christians or people of faith often get confused and think that science and faith actually are at odds with one another. And it's really just another Galileo issue. It's the issue of creation versus evolution. The early chapters of Genesis describe God creating the world in a very specific way. Way. And if you take them uh, literally and if you take them scientifically, it directly contradicts everything we've learned from modern 
science. And so uh, last Sunday, we spent a lot of time talking about this. We, uh, I shared a bunch of problems with the way that this whole debate has just been framed of creation versus evolution. And then I actually shared some significant problems with uh, literal scientific textbook-like readings of early Genesis. And then I just ended the sermon. <laughs> and uh, basically, we ran out of time. And I said, there is an alternative. Um, there is a better way to understand what early Genesis is all about. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. I will uh, share with you some ways to read Genesis. And then I'll share some key lessons that I think we need to learn about all of this. And so I will say, if you were not here last week, um, that's okay. I do encourage you to go back and listen to the first two messages in uh, this series. And if you're here today and you're new to church, or, or maybe you're new to faith, or, or, or maybe uh, you're new to the whole Bible, maybe you're not aware of these discussions or even this debate. If you are, that's awesome, right? Great. You're probably starting in a better place than, than most of us. But if you do ever sit down to read the Bible, and Genesis is a great place to start, I want to just give you some tips of how to interpret or understand what these first few chapters are all about. Because here's the deal, and this is really for all of us, wherever you are in your journey of faith. Whenever you read any passage in the Bible, you have to start with this question. What was the author's original intent and purpose? What was the author's original intent and purpose? When this story was first written down and preserved and read over and over and over by the Israelite people, what was the original purpose for them? What was the original purpose that the author wrote this story in Genesis? If it's not to teach us modern science, which we spent a lot of time talking about last week, then what was its purpose? And so today, I just want to give you a few options, a few ways to think about this. And these options are not exclusive. I'm going to give you four options. It could be a combination of all four. But as biblical scholars have studied this over and over and over, if they studied Genesis in its original language and in its original culture and context, here are some of the best insights that they offer about why this text was originally written. So let's jump in. Number one. It was written as a poetic meditation. The idea here is that the ancient author, or probably authors, it seems like there's a few different authors in the early chapters of Genesis, are simply offering a beautiful meditation or reflection or celebration on the wonders and the beauty of creation and God as its creator particularly chapter 1 of Genesis. If you've ever read it, you remember um, there's a rhythm and a pattern to it. It says God creates the world in seven days. Each day is described in a similar way. God speaks. He says, let there be something. And then that thing appears. And then God names or calls it something. And then God says that it is all good. And then it ends by saying, and there was evening and morning the first day. And then there was evening and morning the second day. And then the third day. And it keeps going. And there are all these poetic and literary elements to that chapter. And we don't have time to go through them. But a lot of scholars say, this sounds and reads a whole lot more like a psalm or like a poem than the other historical narratives that we have in the Bible. So why would we read it like a historical narrative if that's not how it was originally 
intended. So one option is it was never meant to be that. It was meant to be poetic, metaphorical, figurative. It's not meant to be literal history. Here's a second reason that the early chapters of Genesis may have been written. Number two, as a polemic against other creation myths. Now let me unpack this. Uh, We're going to get a little technical here, but we know the book of Genesis was put in its written form right after the Exodus. So many of us remember that story. Israel escapes slavery in Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. They go through the wilderness for a while, and when they get to the promised land, they will live surrounded by and among other peoples and kingdoms, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians still. And all of these other ancient peoples had their own gods, and they had their own creation myths. Now, when scholars use the word myth, uh, they don't mean a story that's simply made up or not true. Um, Myth, in a scholarly setting, means a formative story that a group of people tell about their origins and ancestors. So all of these other nations have these creation myths, and we have access to them today. Uh, Archaeologists in the last 200 years have discovered many of these, and it's fascinating because on one hand, there are some striking similarities between Genesis, early Genesis, and many of these other creation myths, but there's also some key differences. And probably what's going on is that Genesis was written to be Israel's creation myth. Now again, remember, myth is a story told about origins and ancestors. So for Israel, our ancestors start with Abraham. They always track everything back to Abraham. God created Israel from nothing, and he started with this guy named Abraham. So part of Genesis is telling, a large part of Genesis is telling our lineage from Abraham. But our ancestors began, or our origins began, with the one true God. And our one true God that we worship is very different from all of the other gods. When you read the Babylonian creation myth, it's called Enuma Elish. The Babylonian gods are fickle. They're violent. The world is created when they get into this massive argument with one another. Humans are an afterthought. Humans are made to serve at the whims of the gods. And the gods quickly get bored with these human people. And so what Israel is doing in early Genesis is to say, that's not what God is actually like. So the word polemic means an argument against the prevailing ideas in culture, a corrective. Genesis is putting forward a different creation myth, a way of challenging the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Canaanites around them. Here's a third way of understanding early Genesis. And this is related, but it's slightly different. Number three, as a vocational identity for Israel. So uh, Genesis might be directed outward to challenge other nations' creation myths, but it also might be directed inward to give Israel its own sense of purpose and identity as a people. Because remember, they are entering the promised land, and they're about to create a new nation and a new life. And so I want you to think for a moment about some parallels between Israel's circumstances in that moment about to enter the promised land and the story of Adam at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis says that Adam is created by God from nothing, from scratch. 
And then he is given a garden in which to live, a land of plenty, a land flowing with trees and fruit and abundance. And he's told that he can flourish there. And he's told to obey God there, that as long as he trusts in God and obeys God, God will bless him. In fact, God blesses him immediately with a helper, Eve, and together with God, they will flourish in the garden. They're also told there's one tree in the garden. Don't eat from that tree. It's poisonous. It'll kill you. And when they do eat from that tree, when they disobey God, the consequence is exile from the garden. You see, Adam and Eve's story is Israel's story. God creates Israel from scratch, from nothing. And then he brings them into this land flowing with milk and honey, with everything they could ever need. And the land is often described like a garden where they will flourish and where God will bless them as long as they keep trusting in him and obeying him. But there's going to be a temptation to worship other gods while they're in the land. And God says, don't do that. Don't worship other gods. If you do, it will kill you. And when Israel does worship other gods, when they abandon and disobey God, the consequence is exile from the land. You see, many scholars believe that for the Israelites, these early stories in Genesis were less about universal and cosmological origins, and they were more about the new life that they were beginning in that specific historical moment where they're entering the promised land to now be God's chosen and created people. Here's one more option or insight, because again, it could be a combination of all of these. Number four, Temple inauguration and worship. And this one's uh, a bit complex as well. We're kind of diving deep into the scholarly world today. So I'll try to keep this one simple. But the idea is that early Genesis is intended to describe the whole world like a temple. A temple that is built and then dedicated and consecrated and inaugurated where God will live and his people will worship him. Now, when you read early Genesis, you don't see that. I don't see that. None of us see that in the story, but that's because we're not from their culture. But remember their context. Uh, Before Israel enters the promised land, they receive a whole bunch of instructions about how to build a tabernacle or what will later be a temple when they get there. And this is the part of the Bible, if you're ever reading through the Bible, where we start skipping and skimming, because you get to the second half of Exodus, and there's these long, intricate, repetitive, boring, architectural details about how to build this temple. And it's boring to us, but it was really important to them, because they are building God's house. Like they are building the house, the home, where God is going to come and live and where they will go and meet with him. And then after all of those boring instructions, we get to Leviticus. And there's a whole bunch of more boring instructions about these priests. Because there's going to be priests that are supposed to take care of the temple. And the priests will represent and mediate God's presence to the rest of the people. Now, back up to Genesis 1. When Genesis 1 describes God creating the world in six days, it's ordered in the same way as the instructions for building the temple. 
In Genesis, there are six days of work where God speaks things into existence. In Exodus, God speaks six times to Moses, giving him instructions for building the temple. After six days in Genesis, it says God completes his work and then he rests. After Moses and the people follow God's six sets of instructions, it says they complete their work and then they rest. Genesis says that God made humans in his own image and he set them apart from the rest of creation to be his representatives. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers describe how the Hebrew priests will be set apart to be God's representatives to the people. Genesis says that God put humans in the garden to work it and take care of it. The same two Hebrew verbs are used over and over and over to describe the priest's job of taking care of the temple. The point is that when an ancient Israelite read the Genesis story, they would have immediately thought of the temple and of worship. They would have known that this text is teaching us that the whole world is like God's temple and we are his representatives. We are made in his image to worship him and to represent him in our world. But we miss all of that if we don't know the cultural context and if we're so focused on modern scientific questions that the ancient people were never asking. Now, let me pull all of that together and offer a few lessons for us. Because if Genesis is written for these very different purposes, or at least the first parts of Genesis, then there are a few key lessons we need to take away. So I'll go through a few lessons and then I'll wrap up with one final question. Lesson number one, the stories of early Genesis are theologically truthful while not about scientific processes. So it's pretty clear these chapters are not trying to teach us modern science. That's not their purpose. But that does not devalue them in any way. In fact, I actually think it elevates these chapters. It says there is something theologically rich that's going on in these chapters that they are addressing ultimate questions about God and the world and worship and identity it would actually devalue these chapters to say it's about scientific details. Imagine, if you will, uh, Jesus one day is teaching a crowd of people. And uh, he wants to teach them about God's love for rebels, for failures, even for the self-righteous. And so he tells them this amazing story about a son who... Uh, turns his back on his father, he goes out and he makes these horrible decisions, and when he finally decides to return home to the father, the father unconditionally loves him and forgives him. And imagine Jesus finishes this story, and a religious leader raises his hand and says, uh, Jesus, what village did the father live in? What was his name? Did he have a birth certificate? Can you prove to me that this story is true, that it really and literally happened. You see, I think Jesus would shake his head and he would say, you're missing the entire point of the story. The story is as true as it could be. It's just not true in the way you want it to be. 
So lesson number two, the truth of the story is in what and why, not how. So here, I think, are some of the powerful truths that we can take away from the early chapters of Genesis. That God is creative. That the world is meant to be ordered. That humans are made in His image and we have the dignity that He gives us and we are His representatives in this world. That humans are invited to co-create and flourish in a trusting relationship with God. That men and women are made to be equal even though they're different. That work is good. That rest is good. That independence from God is disastrous. We could go on and on, but there's a lot of truth in these chapters. It's just not modern scientific truth. If we want modern scientific truth, that's great. That's totally fine. We should just read science textbooks. And take classes and look through microscopes and look through telescopes. That's not the kind of truth that the Bible is teaching us. Lesson three, uh, God accommodates to us. And let me explain what this means. See, if God was trying to teach ancient Israelites about the creation of the world, how do you think he would communicate that to them? Wouldn't he use their language, their ideas, their culture, their limited and, in fact, inaccurate scientific knowledge? Emily, uh, one of our pastors, just had little baby Kate. Whoop, whoop. Uh, how does Emily or Phil explain to her other three children where Kate came from? To Teddy, their one-year-old, she probably just says at this point, Kate came from God. God gave us Kate, right? Uh, to Bailey, who's three, Emily would say, uh, Kate came from mommy's tummy. Remember when mommy's tummy was kind of big, right? That's where Kate came from. To Eva, who's five, Emily might say, Kate didn't literally come from mommy's tummy. She came from another part. Let me explain that a little bit to you. And she might give a few more details. And then in a few years, when Eva is older, Emily will sit her down and say, actually, Daddy played a role in all of this as well. <laughs> and there will be a more comprehensive and perhaps awkward discussion and description of exactly how Kate was created. Now, would it make any sense to give a biologically accurate and comprehensive answer to Teddy right now about where his little sister just came from? No, we would all just say God gave this child. And that's true even if it doesn't offer a scientifically accurate and comprehensive answer. And God does the same thing with us when he communicates with us. He accommodates to us. He communicates us uh, on our level and in ways that we can understand. That's what it means to be a loving God. And that's really important to remember when we're reading ancient texts. Lesson number four is simple. Respect science. Right? If we want scientific answers to scientific questions, let's just ask the scientists. Right? And let's trust in their best explanations. And that does not mean that all scientists are always right. They're not. Our scientific knowledge 
is always growing and it's expanding and it's adapting and it's correcting and it's discovering new things. But that is the realm of science. So you take your how questions about the world here to science. And then when you have significant why questions about the world, let's bring them here to Scripture. Now, this week, um, I'm going to do what I hope is a short podcast to just try to address some additional questions that we didn't have time to get to today. And more importantly, to offer some more resources uh, to you, particularly if you have more questions or uh, or even pushbacks, or you just want to dig deeper or understand some of these things that I flew through um, a little bit better. So I'll um, offer that this week. But I do want to close with what I think is one of the biggest questions that comes up whenever we talk about this issue, and it's this. What about the stories of Jesus rising from the dead? Because if early Genesis is not a literal, historical, scientific account, well, what about the resurrection stories? And this is a fear for a lot of us, that somehow if if Genesis 1 isn't scientifically and historically and literally true, then maybe neither are the stories of Jesus rising from the dead. And we think that because these two stories, the Genesis story and the resurrection stories, they're in the same book. But they're not actually in the same book. Genesis is a completely different book from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These books were written more than a thousand years apart by totally different authors in different languages, in different cultures, in different circumstances and contexts, and for totally different purposes. And in fact, uh, the purpose of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is quite straightforward. They're historical documents. They record and recount historical people and events that took place in the first century AD in a small backwoods part of the Roman Empire. The gospel stories are not poetry. They're not myth. They're not fiction. They're not parable. They are, in fact, All scholars would agree the best preserved and most accurate historical documents we have from the Roman Empire at that time. And they all record with astonishing detail the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And on one hand, it seems to defy the laws of science for someone to die and then rise from the grave three days later. On the other hand, isn't nature replete with examples every year, every fall, winter, and spring of life miraculously emerging from death? And if God is the creator of the laws of science that govern our world, might there not be other laws, other truths, other realities that science cannot measure or see or observe or access, but no less govern our lives and our world. And so I invite you today to believe in a God who is creator. Creator in the most glorious ways that our imaginations could never fathom. And to believe in God who is a redeemer. A redeemer in ways that our imaginations could never
Let me pray for us. Lord, as Psalm 19 said, as we read a couple of weeks ago, we are so grateful for the witness to your creation in the sky and the stars and the seasons and the mountains here in Colorado. We're thankful for that. We're also thankful that you sent your son to live with us and among us. And to show us beyond a shadow of a doubt what you are like. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his grace. We thank you for all that he gives us. The healing and the wholeness that he offers to us. Help us to trust in you for that. I pray this in your name. Amen.